Welcome to Funds That Won, where we dive into some of the world's most renowned investment funds. We'll interview investment managers across the alternative landscape and learn how they built their million and even billion dollar asset management empires. We'll explore teams, structures, strategies, and best practices in launching and running alternative investment funds. Well, 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 Lincoln. How the turntables have turned. That's right. Welcome to the show, people. My name is Bridger Painton. I'm your new host for today's episode. I'm actually interviewing Mr. Lincoln Archibald. So, Lincoln, welcome to my show today. It's good to have you on as a Thank guest you. Thank you. Uh, for this show. <laughs> but it should be a fun episode. Actually, Lincoln, you've got a new fund coming out. So yep. we want to hear about your fund. We want to hear about this fund that may or may not win. We'll see. Uh, kind of, I want to hear the thesis, though, that funds that won is the show. So let's let's talk about this fund. So give us a, uh, a breakdown of this fund, what the thesis is, what you guys are planning to do. Yeah, so we are really excited. Uh, we're launching a GP stakes fund. So kind of a unique asset class uh, where the objective is we're going to go out and we're going to acquire minority interest in the management companies of emerging funds. Uh, so that's kind of in the simplest form, uh, you know, the objective there. So go a little bit deeper for us. So I'm guessing this is stemming from fund launch, lots of students, and you can pick from those funds. I know you guys have been partnering with those funds prior, but this is now the next step of actually an evolution of this, where you're actually doing GP stakes in these funds. So walk, give us a little more you know, context yeah. of this, how this kind of yeah. came about. No, yeah, so over the past couple of years, for those that don't know, uh, we've uh, been a part of a company called Fund Launch, right? Where we teach people how to start investment funds. So we primarily started with education, uh, quickly developed more into consulting. And honestly, today we're somewhat of a quasi service provider uh, where we help incubate new funds. So we've got thousands of emerging managers coming through our ecosystem. And they have, you know, various capital needs and various needs in their business as they're, you know, taking to the step into the fund management role. And uh, so actually earlier this year, we started just, you know, offering, uh, you know, to be more involved with these firms as strategic advisors or board observers, mm. investment committee observers, you know, interim CFOs, just filling sort of different uh, human capital gaps in these emerging funds in exchange, uh, you know, for a rev share in their fund. Uh, and it's been great, but we've had a lot of firms that have had additional capital needs uh, with us. So, so, they, so prior, it's just been consulting, essentially. Primarily. Consulting, sitting on their board, helping them with, I guess, intangible things. Yep. But now transitioning to where they're actually placing capital with them as well. Yep. Is that correct? Yep, exactly. So there's uh, a lot of different capital needs that a new fund might have when just starting out. And so, and we want to be able to offer, uh, you know, those uh, capital to fill those gaps. Mm, yeah. So stemming from partnering with these, how, now how many groups have you partnered with so far? Uh, we have nine portfolio funds that we've partnered with. Yeah, really cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they've copied, uh, you copied my beard. Have the other people copied the beard yeah, as well? Nobody's copied the beard yet. <laughs> I, uh, for people that are, are listening to this, uh, I started quite a trend at the office apparently. Uh, everyone's picking up beards now. Mason's got a beard. Every, Lincoln's got a beard. Everyone's got beards. I don't know about these portfolio companies. They might have beards soon. We'll see. It was pretty funny. We actually, uh, me and Bridger just went to a, a conference last week. and uh, Greenwich Economic Forum. Yeah. It's actually really cool. We had Ray Dalio Matt there. Ray Dalio. David. A, a David bunch of Rubenstein. Yeah, Rubenstein. Founder of Carlisle Group. All the big fund managers. Uh, met with a bunch of pensions, endowments, big family offices. It was a fantastic event. 
Uh, but uh, Bridger and I were walking around, and we had similar suits and similar beards and similar hair. And everyone's like, "What are you, what are you guys, brothers? What's?" We did look really alike. <laughs> I was like, "We look like brothers. We're probably yeah. long lost cousins," um, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty fun. Yeah. Okay, so I cut you off. So we were so you got nine portfolio companies now transitioning to now let's place capital. Let's help with the startup fees. So an obvious question I think anyone would ask is, okay, you know, Lincoln, why? So you're building a fund that's going to invest into these startup emerging fund managers. These, these guys have never launched a fund before. Why take a, a chance on these startup managers? Why not just take your fund and go invest in existing managers on fund four and five? Why are you guys getting into fund one? Like wh where's the alpha there? Yeah. Great question. Uh, there's a couple of different ways I think about this. First and foremost is uh, emerging fund managers actually just perform better uh, statistically. Hmm. Uh, they generate higher IRRs uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of those main reasons is that they are smaller funds, right? First funds are typically smaller funds. And they're right, if you're a smaller fund, you're writing a smaller check. And smaller checks are typically, uh, you know, being allocated into inefficient markets. Mm. So, and a lot of these emerging fund managers that we're working with, they're coming right out of industry. And so they are bringing industry expertise. You know, they've been working on the trading desk for the past 10 years and they see inefficiencies that their bosses are doing or that they're doing, or they've been syndicating deals or they've been a real estate agent or they've been an independent sponsor. And, you know, now they're seeing, they, they see inefficiencies in the market and they uh, want to come and capitalize on them. So, uh, you know, these emerging fund managers, yes, while perceived- so, so let me cut you off for a second. They're, they're outperforming bigger funds. Typically, St yes. Statistically. Statistically. So you're saying emerging managers typically outperform bigger funds. Yeah. Very interesting. And uh, another reason for that is uh, a product focus, right? Mm -hmm. When you're a new fund, you're focused on one product, right? If I'm starting a real estate fund, maybe it's multifamily. Right, I'm not focused on multifamily, assisted living, commercial, residential, mm. like everything. Right, I'm just focused on one product, and I'm going to be damn good at managing multifamily and generating alpha. And these big funds, you know, they manage billions and multiple products, so they have split product focus. Mm. Interesting. I actually it reminds me. I read a report actually recently about this. It was funds over a billion dollars. It's actually hard to place capital when you get to a billion dollar realm because the deals, the check size, like for a venture capital firm, it's, you have to write a very big check size, which sometimes isn't as efficiently allocated as would a smaller fund. Um, and there's actually this sweet spot in the, you know, for whatever the asset class is from anywhere from like a $20 million fund size, to like $300 million fund size, where they actually get the highest returns. Yeah. Once you get over a billion dollar realm, your returns actually start to diminish because it is just, it's just so much capital to deploy. It becomes a lot harder to deploy that capital, which is pretty interesting to your point of, emerging managers outperforming big funds. What's well, the velocity of money concept, right? Like SoftBank raising a hundred billion dollars, mm, you yeah. know, they now have to go write $5 billion checks. And a lot of times firms don't need $5 billion, yeah. right? They, they just, they just don't. I, if anybody wants to write a check for five billion to our firm, that would be great. I'll, we'll take it. Uh, I, we'll see how it's spent for well, fund launch, but yeah, well, you're welcome. Okay, if, but here's uh, the Soft problem Bank's with like, that. Here's the problem. Let me, I feel like this is important to uh, you know, talk about yeah, because yeah. the problem is if we took a $5 billion check, uh, now if we have any additional financing needs or any of our future shareholds, we now have to live up. If they if they bought a 20% you know, mm, valuation yeah. for a $5 billion check, we're now a $25 billion Company. firm. Yeah. And so we need to generate a $25 billion market cap. But what happens when we're only a $12 billion market cap in a few years? 
now huge write downs. Yeah. Right, massive write downs in stocks. You so, see Instacart? Yeah. Instacart was, I think, 39 billion yeah. market cap in 2021. They just IPO'd in an $8 billion market cap. Yeah. I mean, like 70% drop from their last private funding round to now going to the public markets. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's exactly what you're talking about. It's a good point. Hey, guys, thanks for listening. As you know, we don't run ads on this channel. So if you could really help me out, this podcast has added any value to you or your business. Uh, please subscribe, rate, and review. I would appreciate that greatly. Thank you. Sorry, back to back to all back to yeah. emerging managers, right? So this is where the the alpha comes in right is these emerging managers is what you're saying you can come in an early stage they actually are more focused they can allocate dollars to more inefficient markets yeah. and they can get usually outlandish returns mm -hmm. do you have any examples i don't know if you can share but of the nine portfolio companies currently what are some of the markets they're in what are the inefficiencies they're finding right now yeah um you know i have a, a firm out of texas that uh is doing dis distressed uh, pref equity uh, mm -hmm. So there's all these construction. He's been a broker for the past uh, two decades, syndicated a number of deals. Um, but there's uh, all these uh, real estate developers got a little over their skis, mm -hmm. right? They didn't raise enough money uh, for their products or they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're basically the wells dried up, mm -hmm. right? And they either need to file bankruptcy or they need to, uh, you know, get an additional check, some bridge financing to make it until they can, you know, either refi or stabilize, but with rates keep going up, you know, it creates a, it creates an awesome opportunity for uh, distressed assets. So he is lending, uh, uh, you know, or, you know, acquiring preferred equity in these uh, different firms. And Interesting. He's been, he's been great. So we, yeah. you know, emerging managers, yeah. you, you get pretty unique investment strategies, uh, you know, out of this because, uh, well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're just, you know, really unique markets. Well, it sounds like you guys are, do you have a certain industry you're targeting with the GP stakes or well, is industry agnostic? Look, the way we position ourselves is we know funds, right? We know the business of funds really well. Last year, we set up about 130 funds through our programs. Uh, we know this business inside and out. And in reality, uh, our strength is, you know, the operational efficiencies of systematizing and optimizing everything inside of the firm. Right. So that goes from fundraising processes of how to, you know, go out and and raise money and, you know, have a relationship with your investors, uh, systematizing and optimizing uh, features of the firm. So managing a business. Mm. Right. Governance, yeah. managing human capital and making sure you've got a good business running there with insurances and admins and tax, accounting, legal. Um, and then systematizing and optimizing uh, the fund. So your your investment strategy. So look, we, we know the business of funds really well. And while a hedge fund, you know, trading equities and, uh, you know, a, a, a buyout private equity firm might appear extremely different. I mean, obviously they do have their differences, but there's the overlap is is pretty similar. So we are we position ourselves as actually industry agnostic where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we in a lot of ways, we're betting on the manager a lot more. We're betting on the jockey and not the horse as much. Mm. So we are looking for really strong operators uh, that have demonstrated an ability to operate uh, efficiently and effectively in the marketplace and, and can show promise of continuing to do so. Mm, yeah, I like it. So give us some numbers. I mean, we're numbers people on here. Give us some numbers, what it looks like if I'm an investor putting money in or not even that, like when you guys write a check to a GP stake fund and help us walk through the difference between a fund of funds and a GP stakes fund. Uh, what, well, actually just let's start there. Walk us through that difference and then let's dive in some numbers of how that 
translates from you know the difference of a fund to funds for a GP stakes with a return from that you know portfolio company? Yeah, uh, great question. So a traditional fund of funds is going to go out and they're going to raise money and they're going to raise typically larger amounts of money and they're going to go allocate. Some are industry focused, some are agnostic, and uh, they're going to write large checks into different managers. Um, and a fund of funds, uh, it's typically there's a, it, it, well, let me say this. You're typically writing the check into the limited partnership, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're coming in as an investor. You have no forms of discretion. You have no forms of, uh, you know, ability to sway management. You are just an LP, right? Uh, a traditional limited partner. Now, to keep it simple, for GP stakes, it's a general. Well, and I'll add before you move on, the reason for a fund of funds too is a lot of these funds you can't get into. Yeah. The minimum check size is like $100 million. And so you pool money together, you invest in there. Sometimes you can command a lower management fee, lower pref, and then that's passed on back to the investors of the fund of funds. So that's where they get their alpha. That's why you typically will see a fund of funds that's a multi-billion dollar fund. Because yeah. they, they generally charge a very small management, very small little pref and carry because they're getting double feed. You're getting feed twice as an investor so, on the yeah. front and the back end. So a typical fund of funds will then go out and try try and negotiate down yeah. uh, some you management, know, fees, some management fees so that the investor isn't have a dual fee burden. Yeah. So now, so that's fund of funds, yes. which is not what you guys are doing. Walk us through now a GP stakes fund. How is that different? A GP stakes firm is where we're going to go acquire uh, interest in the management companies of these firms. So traditionally, the industry started about 20 years ago. It, GP stakes is a relatively new industry. Mm -hmm. And it's where uh, you know there was either a bad partner or the management companies of these funds had different fiscal needs. And these private equity guys came in and said, hey, well, look, we can, uh, we'll buy out you know, 10%, 20%, 5% of your firm, whatever. Uh, we'll give you some capital to either buy out a bad partner or give you some money for the GP commit or give you some growth equity, uh, right? Which is, you know, giving a company some capital to grow, mm. um, uh, you know, a profitable company, some capital to grow. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll come in and we'll, we'll participate on the upside as well. Uh, so we're, we're essentially coming in as minority partners on these firms alongside the general partners that are in there. Mm. And that's, and that's the core dis differences of where the capital is going. So when you look at industry today, GP stakes, you know, they're writing these typically $100 million size checks into these behemoth firms, mm. right? That are only managing, you know, north of a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, you know, we try and um, we only work with firms that are less than a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we work with emerging, fan, uh, emerging fund managers. And so we will write checks in a variety of ways, uh, primarily into the general partnership as a form of GP commit, right? As you're growing, uh, for those that don't know, you're expected to, you know, a new manager is expected to put up one to 3% of uh, the capital. Pretty easy on the first fund sometimes, but sometimes maybe you spend all your money on getting set up and you don't have that much money to- It can be a lot. If you're it, setting up a $100 million fund, that's one to $3 million. Yeah, that the managers yeah. are expected to put in. GP so we can we can fill that void. Um, and then we can uh, give firms some growth equity, uh, or we can just come in and you know write a healthy, strong check uh, to get, get the firm going, right? A common mm. misconception in the firm is that you need billions of dollars to start a fund. Uh, we've obviously debunked that uh, over the past couple of years that you can really run a firm with it. 
uh, effectively, depending on your structure, uh, with you know as little as a few million bucks. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know we uh, we like to come in and and help help managers get bootstrapped. Yeah, really cool. So, so just so I'm clear, your fund will go in buy up pieces of the management company and or the general partner. You'll help with the GP commit. Are you guys also going to write an LP? commit dollar like will you become an investor an anchor investor with them or is it all going to come through the gp and management company so that's where we're kind of somewhat of a quasi that's where we differ right as a gp stakes firm and a uh you know fund of funds is we have a fiduciary responsibility protect to protect our investors capital and as such sometimes uh, depending on the firm a majority of the check needs to be collateralized by the investment strategy and can't be directly put into the opco to fund startup expenses. Uh, so look, we, we, we wanna protect our investors first and foremost, so it really depends on the deal, but yes, we, we will function in a variety of ways to ultimately maximize IRR for our investors at, and simultaneously add the most value to our potential portfolio companies. Okay, so that, so I gotta summarize that. So the answer is you do both. Yes. And it just depends on the deal. Yes. You'll sometimes do more, but do you, and on every deal, do you plan on doing some of the GP and some of the LP? It just depends on the weights of each deal. It, it, it really depends on the deal. Some deals might be a fully, you know, full GP, entire full no check, LP. you know, some might just be a full, like for a brand new fund, it might be a full LP check mm. and uh, we'll come in and provide just strategic advisory services on that group. Interesting. Uh, walk me through what would like what what would lower that risk? You mentioned you want to obviously get the best returns for your own investors. Mm -hmm. What are some of those deciding factors? Like, give me a, give me an example. Yeah, um, a lot of it depends on you know traction of the manager, right? Uh, have they raised any money? Do they have subscription docs signed for any dollars? Mm. Where are they at in their fund life cycle, right? Because we partner with firms at inception and. Uh, also more little more established managers that already have you know uh, five ten fifty million dollars uh, subscribed right so that can help us predict the cash flows that the general partnership is going to kick off in the future to help us better make that decision mm, okay so in a brand new startup fund you wouldn't want to put as much towards the gp management company because you don't wanna, you don't wanna pay for startup costs correct? correct you'd probably rather write an lp check it's only going to be dedicated towards if they're investing in real estate towards the real estate. Yep. But it may be a more established manager. It might swing the other way. Yeah. Where you so want we more might, in the, cause it's, cause it's different. Okay. That makes so, more sense. So let's say maybe all in, we write a check for a million dollars and maybe, we say, you know, we'll, we'll divide it up depending on the nature of the deal where 50 K of that would go to startup expenses, mm -hmm. helping the firm, you know, cover any ancillary costs at the beginning. Uh, we typically don't like to fund salaries uh, unless mm -hmm. we're obviously, you know, so buying out the stake. But so 50K goes in to fund startup costs, maybe. And then, uh, you know, 450K goes as a form of GP commit to cover that GP commitment. Mm, okay. um, and then, you know, remaining uh, 500K goes into the limited partnership. And so in that sense, though, 950,000 is essentially going to the fund yeah. where it's going to be used to be invested. The other 50 grand is just startup costs. Right. That might be how it's split up. Okay. That makes a little more sense. Yeah. So give me some, some numbers now on returns. So let's just say, I'm gonna give you a theoretical example. Let's say we got fund one and fund one's doing real estate and it's producing a 15% a year to, to its investors. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the rate of return a normal limited partner would get. Give me, if you can give me some round numbers, 
as a limited partner, if you just wrote a check, you'd get 15% a year. Yeah, that's how it works. But if you guys come and write a, like that, let's say a million dollar check and a portion goes to GP and the management company and a portion goes to the limited partner, what kind of return does the fund then generate? Does that make sense? Yeah. So a normal investor would get 15. What do you guys get? Because you've now got GP stakes, you've negotiated a few things. What do you guys get in yeah. that example? No. So yeah, there's there's obviously a premium uh, that comes into play, uh, you know, for RLPs that participate in this firm because they're not just participating as traditional limited partners. So tr traditionally, the GP commit uh, commit portion of it has either reduced fees or no fee, no carry associated with it, which can command anywhere from a you know three to six percent premium so right the, there that would be that would take your return from a 15 to maybe a 20 or 21. yeah exactly right there okay cool. yep and then depending on the size of the stake which will go really any we're, we're minority we never do majority we want to leave enough meat on the bone but de again depending on the role that we're going to fill it's anywhere from a three to a 30 percent stake in the firm mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of a, a, a wide buy box there uh, but and you know again it has to make sense fiscally uh, to our investors, but you know, if we grabbed a 15% stake or a 18% stake in the firm, it will you know bring that 21% as high up to a, almost a 30, uh, because mm -hmm. now you're participating. Our investors, at least, are participating both on a limited partnership basis and on a general partnership mm, income. Because you're getting the all the other fees from all the other investors as well as a GP. Yep. So interesting. So to just summarize, as a normal investor in the same fund, you'd have gotten a 15. Yep. But if you came through linking your fund in, as a GP stakes, you would get anywhere from a 21 to a 30% return on the same performance of the fund, just how the deal, how you've structured your relationship differently. Yeah, obviously which is pretty cool. no guarantee of returns. Yeah, that's a very, th you know, that's a very, a very hypothetical, hypothetical, theoretical example. But uh, yes, that's, that's kind of the fundamentals of how that works. It's good to understand, I think, the metrics of that. Because that, to me, it makes a lot of like, oh, that makes sense of why I would invest in, a, in your GP stakes fund rather than going directly to all these funds myself. Like, oh, I can just, I can go invest in funds. I invest in funds all the time, but I come to a GP stakes fund, all of a sudden my return goes up a lot based on just the negotiation that you've done with that firm. Yep. Now walk me through, that's on the upside. Is there a downside, like is it levered downside or does it insulate risk on the downside? We, yeah, we don't leverage. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, it's we're, 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 we're investing in two main things. We're investing in the manager's ability to generate alpha, right? And we're investing in the ability for the manager to raise additional capital. Mm. Uh, you know, because if the, those are probably the two biggest, you know, factors. If the fund doesn't raise any more money, then, uh, you know, that is, you know, we're still pretty protected. Uh, you know, if the fund has to unwind and there's not enough, enough fees to cover costs, you know, we'd, uh, basically they, we'd only lose the portion that we allocated to startup mm, expenses yeah. and the less, and the rest is collateralized by their investment thesis. So you know, insulates risk on the downside pretty effectively there. Mm, yeah. uh, additionally, it's the, the fund manager's ability to perform. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it, it says in every private placement memorandum out there that, Hey, you know, this fund can go to zero, right? Mm. You could potentially lose all of your money. So, you know, how we think about that in an effort where we are working with emerging managers, we prefer allocations. Uh, and this is why, again, it depends on every deal, but we, we primarily prefer collateralized cash flowing strategies. Uh, so ideally, uh, you know, our perfect fund is either private equity or real estate uh, because there's, uh, you know, fixed collateral there that it's, it's a lot harder 
for a hedge or for a private equity fund or a real estate fund to go to zero mm -hmm. than a uh, levered hedge fund than a levered hedge fund or levered you know uh, something like that so mm, you know we sense. we are all about capital preservation and uh risk mitigation on the downside and uh, there's a lot of things that uh you know we do to protect investor capital gotcha really cool now that makes I, sense. I do want to say i want to chime in uh, so as you know uh, a potential manager listening to this is like oh gosh well you know Come on, these guys are being sharks here. Yeah, I don't want to give up my stake to these guys. Why would I? And I was about to ask all that. Why would I partner with Lincoln? How are you going to get these deals? What is what's that? Well, look, like? it's not. You know, we call ourselves Fund Launch Partners because we are first and foremost partners, mm -hmm. right, in the firm. We are not just uh, when we say acquiring interest, we are not acquiring debt equity. We're not going to write a check and then stand on the sidelines, mm -hmm. right? That is not what we are about, uh, especially at the emerging manager phase. We want to, I mean, we are vested in your success, right? And we will work with you day in and day out to ensure uh, or, you know, increase every possibility of the fund being successful. And so, again, we'll come in and we'll partner in a variety of ways, as I alluded to earlier, uh, you know, from just strategic, strategic advisory work to coming in and really working with every employee that you have in your firm to make sure they are doing their job appropriately and effectively. You know, we really like to look at, uh, you know, making sure that the, the firm, uh, the business has enough uh, current cash flow and future cash flows to support the operational needs of the firm. Mm. You know, we look at that very extensively. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we're going to come in, we're, we're going to be partners in every way and shape of the word, uh, you know, with these portfolio funds. And that's what we're honestly uh, extremely excited about. So we're not just, you know, investing in these funds for the short term and then taking our chips and leaving. Uh, I spoke with a manager, uh, you know, uh, last week, he was a, uh, a uh, he's been trading at Citadel. And uh, he, you know, we were talking about this concept. And he's like, well, are you just gonna, you know, what happens at the end of the fund? You know, are you just gonna take your chips and leave? And I'm out of a, you know, out of a partner now? And, he, and absolutely not. Right. So we, we're choosing, you want to be with them for fund two, fund three, fund five, fund 10. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Like we want to be with these funds, uh, uh, you know, in, in perpetuity and we mm -hmm. want to see them succeed and become the next black rocks or black stones. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're going to do everything in our power to make that happen. Hey guys, if you are interested in working with myself or our team, uh, we actually select a few clients a quarter to work with. Uh, you can find an application on our website. I would love to see, you know, if you if you are looking to start a fund in any way, shape, or form and need some help, uh, just shoot us a note. We'd love to take a look. So Link, talk us through governance. Uh, how do you guys make decisions? How do you work with these portfolio companies? How does your team work with them and plug in? Like walk us through this whole process if a manager partners with you guys and how you guys make that decisions. Yes. So we uh, have a structured investment committee, as all firms should, in my opinion. Uh, so we have an investment committee of five. So I am actually leading out the investments team. The, I'm the chief investment officer of the firm. So I've got my group, my team of analysts and myself, and we go out and we identify, you know, potential investments. And we, uh, you know, we'll put together an initial two pager. We'll go and we'll do, um, uh, you know, full diligence on the deal and uh, you know, have conversations with uh, you know, the portfolio firms. Uh, we do background checks, we, we do everything, right? We do full diligence, and then we bring it to a, a full investment memo to our investment committee of five, uh, where we need to have a super majority vote to uh, move forward on an investment. 
Um, so that way it brings in uh, you know, all the other partners of the firm uh, in on the decision-making process. Uh, we do have a structured board of advisors uh, and they are you know, primarily more obviously general advisory. Uh, so it's not like a traditional you know, startup where a, uh, you know, they have to go get permissions from the board to do everything. You know, uh, permissions rely within the investment committee really. Uh, to make investment decisions of this firm, and uh, you have, we have general counsel there and general advisory services to make sure, you know, external perspectives to make sure we're we're doing things right and staying on the. Uh, yeah, gotcha. Staying on the path makes sense. Um, sh- switching gears, uh, why now? I mean, uh, what do you think about emerging managers right now? I mean, there's interesting. I mean, every day there's a new headline about how the world's ending or something's going on, or there's just it's weird times. We've had interest rates. You know all the the headlines from the news. It's a very interesting time economically. We were at Greenwich last week. Where I mean, a lot of economists are talking about the rise in interest rates right now, the move to private credit, how capital markets are tightening, how the risk free rate now is essentially five and a half percent. That's pretty hard to beat as a manager. Uh, why like now, why are you guys getting this space now? And also not just you, but also the funds you're incubating. It's a lot of funds right now. They're a startup that maybe these head ones are going to wipe out or maybe it'll help them flourish. What are your thoughts on that? Look, um, obviously there's ups and downs in every market. Uh, but specifically within private funds, uh, there's actually, uh, and you probably know this more than anyone, but, uh, there's, there are so many successful, uh, fund managers where they all came out of, you know, the bottoms of recessions or depressions. And, you know, it really helps them build a robust business. Uh, you know, everyone's a good investor in a bull market. And I think right now, especially, uh, it demonstrates the fact that, look, we, you know, these managers really know what they're doing. Uh, you know, if they can navigate turbulent times like this with high real estate or high uh, interest rate environments, as you said, I mean, uh, when it's low in a low interest rate environment and, and things are cruising, then it, it only compounds. It's a compounding mm-hmm. effect. But, you know, I truly believe if, if they can navigate a down market, you can navigate uh, an up market a lot better. So. Yeah. So you get a, you right now you're watching a lot of these fund managers. Yeah. You guys can see another thing we've been looking at is back to the vintage of funds, the vintage year of funds. Uh, there's actually a correlation with success of those funds. Um, usually vintages of down markets, the 2001 funds that launched almost doubled the performance of funds that launched in 2004. From when you look at a broad like hundred, they actually, this one study Cambridge university did, they studied hundreds of funds and vintages from 2001 doubled the performances of 2004 vintages, uh, funds that were vintage in 2008 and nine, again, almost doubled the performance of vintages of funds in like 2014 or 15. And it was just very interesting as a general sense, the timing of funds. Now, right now we've seen very turbulent times, maybe more to come, maybe not, we'll see. Uh, but in my perspective, I think funds that launch in this, this atmosphere right now, I think will be a very good vintage over the next decade. I mean, time will tell. That's why I'm, ex- I'm actually excited about your fund. I think it's a, a very cool idea, especially right now in the, the times that we're in. And you get to, not just for your own fund, but you get to watch all these fund managers kind of pick the winners. Of, and that's what I'm assuming you're doing, right? Like you guys have with Fund Launch, we have hundreds of funds that come through and you're picking just a handful of the best and brightest funds that come through that you guys can partner with, is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, question for you, uh, you know, obviously this is Fund Launch Partners. Uh, Fund Launch is a great feeder for, and I'm involved on that side of things, feeding in incredible fund managers all over the world. 
Uh, are you guys only partnering with Fun Launch uh, members, or is it is it people outside of Fun Launch? Um, and then also a, a dovetail question is how do people apply or reach out uh, to you to look with you to partner with you guys and or invest with you guys? Yes, uh, great question. No, we we don't exclusively just partner with uh, you know firms inside of Fund Launch. Uh, well, it's an incredible ecosystem, and uh, you know Fund Launch is our primary source of deal flow. I would say. And full disclosure out there, so Bridger, you're actually, Bridger is a minority partner on this firm. Uh, you know, it's, he's, you know, the uh, one of the co-founders of Fund Launch, uh, bringing all of these awesome deals Boom, to the Boom, cat's table. out of the bag. There we go. Cat's out of the bag. Uh, so, uh, so I'm, I'm personally excited about this fund. I think it's a, I think it's a cool idea. I think it's awesome. Yes. Uh, no. So I got, I got to give you credit there. You know, you built this awesome company that is kicking off these awesome fund managers and it's a great opportunity for us to work more intimately with these fund managers as well for uh, you know all of our LPs. How do be how do people partner find you guys then? Oh. So if they're outside of Fund Launch, how do people partner with you or find yes. you? Yes. So no, we don't just work with people inside of uh, inside of Fund Launch. It's uh, uh, you know we we've actually have a number of firms outside already uh, in our in our pipeline right now. Um, you could just find us online. You know Fund Launch Partners uh, bccp.co um there's a couple of different places uh, just fi find me on linkedin but yeah we're constantly looking for the best and brightest the next generation of fund managers uh to empower and support and back and uh you know come in and have skin in the game alongside you guys so no i love it i think it's i think it's really cool and help take these funds to the next level yeah i think it can be a way for sounds like for these these minority stakes that you guys take in these firms that you can come and be an anchor LP an anchor partner, help add legitimacy to the firm, which will help them hopefully. Cause I mean, you're both very incentivized to make sure, like you said before, make sure they raise capital after the capital contribute contribution you give. So you give a capital contribution, you're incentivized. We need to raise like 10 times the capital we just put in. So you're incentivized to bring investors, bring people to the table, go whatever needs to be done to get more capital in the firm and to get that firm successful. It's kind of cool. So it's kind of like a, a, almost like a, I don't know, an investor on steroids. Like it's an investor yeah. partner. I mean, I think it's important to disclose, you know, we're, we're not a placement agent in any way, shape or form mm -hmm. uh, or any nature of the word. We, we are running a fund and, you know, we are investing via fund into our, mm -hmm. into our emerging managers. Um, but yeah, we want the best for them, right? We're going to be alongside you and, and ensuring a, uh, a successful launch of the fund. So Link, let's, let's turn back to you. We talked about your firm this whole time. Let's talk about you, Link. You know, right. you're yeah. a good guy. We work together. I see yeah. you every day. Yep. Let's, uh, I want to hear from you though. So walk me through, what's some uh, business pet peeves from Link and Archibald? Oh, um, gosh, when people don't follow through, you know, like <laughs> yeah. if people don't take accountability of their shit, like that will, that just drives me crazy. So I just think it's so important that if people say, you know, partners, employees, anyone says they're going to do something, then just do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, no babysitting, nothing of that. Just do what you said you're going to do. Lincoln cracks a firm whip. He's the he's a CFO of Fun Launch as well. So disclosure there, cracks a good whip on the finance team. I like <laughs> yeah. it a lot. Uh, favorite book in business that's maybe changed you or shaped you? Oh, gosh, uh, there's so many. Uh, probably, uh, you know, a foundational one is Anti-Fragile by mm. uh, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Yeah. Uh, you know, talks about risk and uh, in life and black swan events coming in and, uh, you know, how to protect from the inevitable. Hmm. I love that book. 
very interesting and i love the even just the have you ever had a book like the title just kind of shapes you that's a book where i i for years i never read the book but just the title of being anti-fragile yeah really changed the way i thought and i was like man how do i make myself my team my business anti-fragile uh again whatever happens in the market happens with things how do i become how do i raise kids that are anti-fragile uh, it's funny. Sometimes a book title can be so good oh, yeah. that it just makes you think. And that's one of those that I, I, for years, and then I finally read the book. I was like, I got to read this book. I've thought about it so much, but I love that whole concept of creating things that are just anti-fragile that can work in any market or yeah. any, uh, any scenario. Your kids can be anti-fragile. You can be anti-fragile, your spouse, your team, your family, whatever it is. I, I uh, absolutely love that. Yeah. Um, another, I'm going to say a quote and I want to get your take on it. Okay. This is, I think an interesting concept. And this, I'll, I'll frame it as a question though for you. Does someone become powerful and then they earn money? Or do they earn money and that makes them powerful? What's your take? Uh, I think it goes either way, honestly. I don't think it's a, I think it's a false choice a little bit there because I think it can happen you look at the careers uh, and, you know, and the trajectory of different people, uh, I think money enhances uh, anything you do. And, uh, but you know, you think about a lot of politicians, uh, you know, that start out, they start out on city council, they go to mayor, right? They go to, uh, you know, ultimately make their way to Congress. Uh, you, you haven't made a lot of money at that point. Right, uh, you. But, but you now have power. But you now have power, mm. right? But after that, uh, after you've had that experience of you know sitting in Congress or a Senate or some influential government position, every board wants you, right? Mm. Every business wants you, and every uh, you know because uh, you know you have knowledge, insight, and experience that's extremely valuable. Then you make a lot of money. Mm. Uh, alternatively, uh, you know you could be. I, I mean, I was just. You can be an investment banker that is a grunt associate. You might be making a million dollars a year and you are a slave to the system. Mm. And I wouldn't say you're a very powerful individual, you know, mm. by making a few millions, you know. Um, but I think it can. I, I think it can enhance you. So I think it's that. Uh, I think it can go either way. Examples of both. both yeah. Both ways have done it. Yeah. I think uh, there's a lot of paths to, to greatness and success, however you define it. And, uh, you know. Do you think those people that made the money uh, were powerful, at least if they didn't have a power position? They didn't hold a, a they, maybe they weren't a congressperson, but they were powerful inside first. Does that make sense? So like that investment banker that was a grunt worker, but like internally, like you, you look at people like uh, Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Like he's like, I knew I would be great. I practiced in silence for years before anyone ever knew my name. So I would consider him as, you know, he was powerful well beyond before he had a power position. But at the same time, I think there's other examples, um, like someone like Bill Gates, you know, Bill Gates, I don't know Bill Gates personally, but they just started this computer company out of, out of their garage. I don't think he was a very powerful individual, but then had a lot of money but then became powerful. But maybe, if you're not, I don't know, maybe you read Bill Gates' biography. Like, were, was he certain from when he was young, like as a power position inside of his own brain, like as a powerful person? I think it's a very interesting concept. Well, I've been, it's, I've it's been wrestling relative. with this. It's, yeah. it's relative in my opinion, because you bring up an excellent point. I was answering the question purely on a fiscal basis, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, assuming that 
you know, money is 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 the driver. I mean, I work in finance. I, you know, well, no, I think but, money is fiscal, but power is a very it can I think, be subjective well, term. Yeah, entirely right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could be powerful as the all-state quarterback on a high school team, mm, yeah. you know, but you have nothing to your name. You're yeah. completely dependent on someone else. But in that realm of, you know, playing football or on that field, you are a powerful being, right? Mm, and so yeah. I think it, it all goes back to your sphere of influence around you and yeah. uh, what you're measuring yourself against and, uh, you know, your associated peer group. Hey guys, so if you want to learn more about investment funds, uh, how they work, how they're structured, if you want to become a fund manager, how I became a fund manager, visit our YouTube channel for more free value. The link is in the show notes. Thank you. You know, Link, walk us through a decade from now. You know, let's say this GP stakes fund takes off. What are you doing? What's it looking like a decade from now with this fund? Yeah, great question. Look, I... uh Obviously, I plan on launching multiple fun- GP stakes funds after this. It's our first product. I think it's, uh, I expect it and are, am confident in its outcome. Uh, you know, I, as we operate in this space, there's a lot of other unique uh, needs uh, in the emerging fund manager space and just fund manager space. I yeah, quickly would love to bring a secondaries product to market. Uh, you know, so buying out uh, basically LP or GP positions that need liquidity. Um, I think it's very complementary to a core, you know, GP stakes product. Uh, I'd love to bring a fund of funds product to the market where exclusively we come in as a large anchor LP, you know, to different managers uh, entering the, uh, you know, the investment management uh, field. So I, I'm really excited. I fully intend on, uh, you know, uh, managing hundreds of millions of dollars within the next couple of years and uh yeah excited to uh, you know kick this things off and and get things into gear mm, i love it when you walk into a room you know you're a two-time state champion you're a concert cellist does that give you a huge power frame when you walk into rooms like what's that like like walking in and just like i could play for a symphony right now on a cello and like Nobody knows that, but like, I could do that. <laughs> like, does that reset bridge, back uh, to the power? Bridge pulling out the, you know, my old, my old skill I know more about LinkedIn than you guys know <laughs> on this. We're going to pull out some story, but does that give you a nice power frame when you walk into a room? Uh, no. I think it gives me context and allows me to empathize with, uh, you know, more individuals. The cellists Look, out there. Look, I think the other that, that are everyone thinks that uh, <laughs> you just grow up and everyone changes and adults are adults. And as terrible as it is, you know, everyone, you're a lot of who you, you know, of of who you grew up, right? And I think uh, that that stays with you, right? Uh, Throughout the entire of your years. And I think, uh, you know, I did literally everything growing up. I was, I worked on a potato farm. I played in the high school play. After that, you know, I played on the high school golf team. I played on the football team. I played the cello and the piano. I taught cello and piano growing up. Um, I'm so thankful to my mom who wanted me to be a, you know, a well-rounded mm. individual uh, because I think that uh, you know, it gave me a lot of context in life. So no, I don't think it gives me power. I think it gives me, I don't think it makes me powerful, but I think it gives, allows me to empathize with more people because I can relate to their interests and their maybe lifestyle uh, a little more. 
Well, I know that all sounds cool. And all. just for context, Lincoln went to a high school with like what, 100 kids that went to your high school okay, or something. No. And so you had to be in the play. You were the star of the show on everything. But there's only like a couple dozen kids. No, I mean, I yes, know. it was. A, it was small. <laughs> How many people in your graduating class? I, there was a fair few. What was it? It was like 150. In your graduating class? Yeah. So like the high school was like 400 kids, 300 kids? Uh, there was four schools. So there's about 600. 600 kids? That's, you know, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. In Idaho on a potato yeah. farm. Yeah. Let's give you guys right. some context about Lincoln. Is potato, how many kids are in your family? I'm one of seven. One of seven. Okay. Yeah. One of seven. But I will, sorry, I'm making, I'm making fun. But those are some pretty cool accolades. And Lincoln is a very good cellist, despite all that. Yeah. Despite. despite. I, should, I shouldn't add it in there, but I'll say it. Despite all yeah. that. <laughs> That's just awesome. Yeah. I, think it's, I think you make a good point, actually. Sorry to, all joking aside how you're raised though, I think really does affect the rest of your life as much as we like to shake things oh, off. Yeah. It, it just, and you have to, sometimes people have to rewire their brain from childhood on how money works, how money doesn't work, whether they can be successful or not. And the contrary is true as well. If you, it sounds like you had a great mother that wanted you in a lot of different things, a mom and dad that pushed you into certain things and, and built this resilience and anti-fragility and toughness and successfulness. Like I'm going to get things done. Lincoln, you were also student by president at your high well, school. Let me cut you off. Let's get and, out of high school. Let's yeah. talk about, let's talk about business. Cause I think yeah. the same is so true for business hmm. because like somebody wants to be in marketing. If you really want to be good at marketing, I think you need to have a good understanding of business operations. I think you need to understand finances and where those dollars are coming from. Mm. I think you need to understand sales and sales psychology, right? Like, you know, business isn't a one, you know, role, one service, one skill set world. I think truly if you want to excel in business or investments, uh, you know, you need to understand everything, mm. you know, and you need to be able to relate with all these different departments uh, you know, in the business to make ultimately make the whole ship run. So I think it, uh, but at the same time, coupling that with really deep skills in one area, it's like an interesting dynamic where you have to be versed in everybody else's stuff, but then also get really good at one specific thing, yep. which is a, a good dynamic of, of both. I think is really good. Yep. Um, well, Link, this has been fun. This has been great. I love it. I liked, I like to end my, this is, I'm taking over your show today. You so did. I'm going to end it the way I like to end it. Uh, this is the way I like to end my shows. Okay. When I'd interview people is I give them one last question. Uh, well, two last questions. If people want to follow you link, where do they go? What's the best way to come follow find you? Find me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the best. So if people are LPs, GPs, they want to come talk to you. Link Lincoln Archibald on LinkedIn yeah. is the best place to go. Yep. Okay. So go check out Lincoln there. And then final question. If this was your final interview you ever did, you're going to die tomorrow. This is what you were remembered for. Okay. I'm going to give you about one minute, minute and a half. You can share whatever you want. It could be religion, politics, business, funds, whatever you want to talk about, kids, family, I don't care. But you got one, one minute, one and a half minute, you're dying, almost your dying testimony. One of my favorite things is I like to read like ancient scripture or ancient text. And if you can do this, at least if you're, there's a lot of text to look at, look at the last thing people share before they die. A lot of times people know they're going to die and they'll share one final thing that they believe is most valuable before they die. If you do that, at least it helps me scrum through. There's so many documents to scrum through the final testimony of people. You usually get some really, really cool things. So I'm asking, I'm giving you, I'm talking here to give you some time. I'm putting you on the spot, but if this was your final dying testimony today, what would you say? That is a great question. Wow. Caught me on the spot here. I would probably have to say 
that, you know, there are a lot of ways to live life. Um, I, I, I remember when I was 19 years old, I was in Sweden. I was at dinner with this guy. And I was asking him, I was trying to decide what, what the heck I wanted to do with my life. And he said, uh, he's like, look, everyone has a suitcase that they can fill up. There, there are so many things. You have one suitcase in life. Mm. And you can fill it up with whatever you want. You could fill it up with the jello, right? You could fill it up with sports. You could fill it up with people. You could fill mm. it up with a few close friends. You could fill it up with a million uh, acquaintances, mm. right? Whatever you want. But everyone has their own suitcase. And you, you are the only one that should decide what to do with that suitcase and where to take it. Uh, because in reality, like everyone's going to tell you what they put in their suitcase, right? And they're going to tell you that that's the best way to go. That's the best field to work in. That's the best way to teach, you know, parent. That's the best way to live life. It's the best way to everything, right? But it's all because that's what they put in their suitcase. And, uh, but just fill your own suitcase and take it where you want to go. And uh, it's your life, right? I don't think there's one perfect way to live it. Uh, I think there's there's not enough time for that, um, but you know make the most of it uh, because it is it is really short and mm. it goes by quick. So that well, I love be, that. Be kind of my my last 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 test. thoughts and, yeah, and thoughts cool. to anyone. Uh, I like it. Listening in. Uh, don't yeah be be inten- I think too be intentional about your suitcase oh, as well. Absolutely. Going in there and and how you're filling it up and don't be so caught up on someone else's suitcase that it's like that's theirs i yep. got mine to fill up yep i like that a lot yeah all information shared are the sole thoughts and opinions of the author do not take any information as legal or financial advice you should seek a certified accountant and a professional legal team before taking any further action we are not selling or soliciting a security in any way shape or form this content is for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as financial or legal advice Clients of Fund Launch or Black Card Capital Partners may maintain positions and securities discussed on this podcast.